Let's turn in uh, Matthew chapter 20 and 21 tonight. Actually, what we're going to do is uh, the first parable of the labors here goes from verses 1 to 16. Verse 16 says, so the last will be first and the first last, so many are called but few are chosen. If you look at the last verse of chapter 19, um, it dovetails in with chapter 20. For the last verse of chapter 19 says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So this first parable here of the laborers in the vineyard, uh, Jesus is going to announced for the fourth and fifth time. Now, we've said this several times going through Matthew, that five times in Matthew, the Lord clearly tells the disciples that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be um, crucified, and on the third day, he's going to rise again. And so in our study tonight, we'll see both four and five. So as we get into... um, this, let's read the parable of the laborers, and then I will come back and comment on it. Let's look at the first couple of verses here. Just go down to verse 3. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarid a day, let's just say a dollar a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And he went out about the third hour. So the third hour would be 9 o'clock in the morning. So the Lord goes to the public square. He sees guys that are waiting around to work. Um, He hires them for a buck a day. And um, that would be 9 o'clock in the morning. And he said to them, "Um, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And they went. Again he went out in the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour would have been noon, and the ninth hour, which would be three in the afternoon, and he did likewise. So we have the, the, the foreman, the boss, uh, continually going back to the same place, hiring men to go into the vineyard to work at different times during the day. And now it's five o'clock in the afternoon in verse six, and on the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others, and they were idle, and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, well, you go also into the vineyard, and whatever's right, you'll receive. So when evening had come, looks like they worked from sunrise to sunset, uh, the owner of the vineyard said to his stewards, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. So he starts with the guys that started at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And when those came who were hired at 5 o'clock in the afternoon or the 11th hour, they received a dollar. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received a dollar. And when they had received it, they murmured against the landowner. And they said, The last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But the foreman said, he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Didn't we agree that you would work for a dollar? Um, Take what is yours, go your way. I wish to give to the last man the same as to you. 
Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, the parable um, is just that. And as we consider it, um, it's really illustrates um, the Christian walk and everybody being um, in whatever God has called them to be. Um, In this case, it's not the amount of time which you serve, nor the provenance of the importance of your position which determines your reward. Rather, you will be rewarded for your faithfulness to the task which God has given to you to perform. The Holy Spirit gives different gifts to different people. And all, whatever your gift may be, all he's asking you to do, it may not seem to be important. And just like it didn't seem right for the one that worked only one hour to get as much as the guy who had been there from 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, the point of the parable is that's not how the Lord judges. He judges by the gifts that he's given you, and are you being faithful in them? Whatever your gift is, and your reward will be dependent upon your faithfulness to what God has given to you. Uh, To some, there's more responsibility given, to some less. But um, we shouldn't compare. There should be no comparison whatsoever amongst one person against another, like these guys that grumbled. And uh, it doesn't matter how small or how short or how insignificant it might appear to be. The question is, are you faithful in what God has given you to do? And you'll be rewarded Accordingly, that's the point of the parable of the labors. And a lot of people are going to be surprised. And um, again, the last verse of chapter 30, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. There's going to be a lot of surprises in the kingdom of heaven. I just have a story coming that makes, (laughs) that uh, uh, when, um, Chuck was ready to go on tour with Love Song. And um, uh, we had this big send-off at the Anaheim Convention Center. This was still, uh, of course, when Chuck was still alive, and he had enough in him to want to uh, take it out on the road one more time. And there was a lot of music that night. Love Song played. A lot of different musicians, Christian musicians were there. And um, then they introduced Chuck, and the place erupted. And they stood up and clapped, and they wouldn't sit down. And Chuck finally had enough, and he said, sit down. (laughs) He said, do you realize you just moved me from roll 10 all the way back to roll 38 in heaven? (laughs) And his point was, he didn't want the attention, and he didn't want all the standing ovation. He didn't want any of that. Because as far as he was concerned, you know, he's getting a reward now that he didn't feel like he should, should be getting. So he's, thanks a lot. You just moved me way back where I could have been by uh, doing all this stuff here. So the, the point, really, is your faithfulness. And that's what this parable is about. Whether you feel you're, what God has given to you is significant, and um, uh, you'll be rewarded according to your faithfulness, and it, it, it varies with how the Holy Spirit 
gives gifts as he will. So the Bible talks about not being any respecter of person and to esteem the other person actually higher than yourself, that this is the Jesus style. Unfortunately, it's not in the church today. The idea that bigger is better, even if it means compromising truth, um, has the outward appearance of success. And that isn't how the Lord sees things. He just doesn't uh, judge by the amount of time, like we see here, when they began to murmur. Um, The Lord says, look, I can do what I want to. I'm the Lord. I I give out the gift. If I want to be good, that doesn't uh, change um, your standings at all. All right, 17 through 19. This is now the fourth time. Um. Then Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Now, this is the fourth time that they've said this. Now, we made the point, I think it was last week or the week before, about um, Mary, who sat at Jesus' feet and uh, was anointing him with oil, uh, a very expensive oil, and then she was wiping uh, uh, the Lord's feet with her hair. It was a sign of worship. And um, this is where Judas gets all bent out of shape and said this could have been sold for a lot of money and given to the poor. The Lord clarifies he could have cared less about the poor because he was a thief and he had his own plans for it. Now, the disciples, four times this has been told to them. The very next verse that we read that James and John, the mother of, the, of Zebedee's sons, came to him kneeling down and, and asked something for him And he said, what do you wish? And she said to him, well, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one in your right hand and the other in your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, well, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm to be baptized with? And they said, we are. And we touched on this earlier. James is going to be... um, uh, the second martyr after Stephen. So when he, Jesus is talking about um, drinking the cup, he's about to drink, he's talking about his death. He just told them in 17, 18, and 19 it was going to happen. Did James and John hear it? No, they heard what they wanted to hear. They were sure that they were about to enter the kingdom, the Lord's going to Jerusalem, and they had this misunderstanding. And I think the point we made, what's the difference between the disciples and Mary, the the sister with Martha and brother Lazarus? Well, remember, she was always sitting at the Lord's feet and listening. And so when the Lord talked about his death, she was simply listening when the disciples weren't. And it was a beautiful form of worship. She knew that Jesus was going to die because the Lord said he was going to die and rise again. And to her credit, um, she wasn't just a hearer of the word, but a doer. Where James and John here, 
right over the top of the head. They, they heard what they wanted to hear. They positioned themselves. They schemed. Because as far as they were concerned, this is the Messiah. We're going to Jerusalem. And, um, you know, I want to sit as prime minister. The other one, secretary of state. Now, the problem with this is, uh, verse 23, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand or on my left is not mine to give, but it is those to whom it is prepared by my Father. Um, The irony of this is that in the kingdom, the 12 apostles are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We read that in Revelation. And as far as the church is concerned, we're going to sit with the Lord on his throne. Now, how we all do that, I'm not sure, but I believe the scriptures teach that. And it says we will rule and reign with Christ for 1,000 years. Scriptures are very clear about that. The mistake Israel made the first time is they had trouble with like Isaiah 53. His hands and his feet, Psalm 22, will be pierced. And verses like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it pleased the father to bruise the son when he made his soul an offering. And um, they couldn't rationalize that with the promise of the kingdom that was promised to David, which would be an everlasting kingdom that would be set up. They only saw this one coming of the Lord. And when he talked about death, either they didn't want to hear or whatever. But um, when the Lord came the first time, if they would have searched the scriptures carefully, they would have understood that it was only the first time he would come lowly, very humble, as a servant, and laid on his life. And... But all they saw was the establishing of the kingdom where they would reign and rule. Um, and James and John wanted it on, on the action. Well, what it, what the, re, the result of that in verse 24, when the other ten guys heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brothers. They got mad. Why were they mad? Because they wanted positions too. They were all thinking... Um, the kingdom's here. There's no doubt Jesus is Messiah, therefore the kingdom has come, and and uh, we want to be a part in that. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So again, they're looking for a position of prominence. He says, okay, you want to be great in the kingdom? You guys got to flip it upside down. And if you want to be great, then you got to learn to take the lower seat. And in time, the Lord will raise you up in the kingdom. So it's, it's this, the idea of the servants now that understand that <clears throat> we're not in the kingdom age right now. 
And as a result of not being in the kingdom age right now, we're in that period of time where we're supposed to be salt and light and to be faithful and uh, to serve one another, to encourage one another, uh, to continue um, on this narrow path. And the, the, the fact of the matter is, when you get down to this last verse again here, verse 16 um, the last will be first and the first will be last. It's the same idea. Um, oh, I can't real sidetrack here, and I'm, I'm going to resist that and move on to, to um, uh, the blind men recognize the king. So in verse 29 to 30, 4, Now as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him, And behold, there's two blind men sitting by the road. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude, you know, told them to shut up, warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. They've heard that Jesus had opened people's eyes. Lame walked. The, the, the death heard, the blind, the blind saw. And when they heard Jesus was passing by, they weren't going to shut up. Even they were told to, to shh, be quiet. They made, you got like, to love these guys. They just went for it all the more. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, well, what do you want me to do for you? Now, that's, <laughs> that's a, a, the dumbest question I think you could probably ask. But... You know, the Bible says we have not because we ask not. He wants specific. He wants them to ask directly, just like he wants us to ask directly um, in your needs and that you talk to him on that level. And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be open. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Now, this is different from the, the time when, the, by, when, when he's by the Temple Mount and he healed the blind man. He, he got down, got a little dirt, spit in it, rubbed it in his hands and stuck it in the guy's eye and said, you know, go down to the Pool of Siloam and, and wash. And uh, he did, and when he washed his eyes, that he saw. And so why are these two guys healed immediately? The answer is you can't put the Lord in a box. He can choose to heal or he can choose not to. He could have chose to heal Lazarus before he died, but that wasn't God's plan. He said, What's the, he told Martha, Martha, my plan is much bigger than what you're asking me to do. You wanted me to be here to heal, heal Lazarus. I have a much bigger plan than that. And what I want you to do is just trust me, that he who lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? And so what we're going to learn tonight as we make our way through the study is the importance of all four Gospels. Now, when we read the story of the demon-possessed man of the Gadarenes, in one of the Gospels, there's just one man who's demon-possessed. But in another Gospel, we find out there's two that are actually there. Now, in this story here, there's two men that are blind. But if you go to Luke 
chapter, let's see, Mark chapter 10. Let's turn over to Mark chapter 10. We have the exact same story, but instead we only have one person mentioned, and he's called by name. It's blind Bartimaeus, and we'll read the same thing. And as we're doing this, again, I want to stress the importance of of, um, showing a harmony of the Gospels that would get more clarification as we put put them all together. So in Matthew, Mark chapter 10, verse 46, it says, Then they came up to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of uh, Timaeus sat by the road begging. Now it only mentions one. If we're just reading Luke, uh, Mark's account here, it's just one guy, and he's got a name, Bartimaeus. And when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then they warned him to be quiet, just like in Matthew. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying, Be of good cheer. Uh, he's, he's calling you. And throwing aside his garment. Well, we don't read that in Matthew. Uh, he arose and came to Jesus. That's not Matthew either. And Jesus answered and said to him, Well, what do you want me to do for you? That is in Matthew. Uh, the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Uh, Rabboni, master, teacher. Then Jesus said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Matthew gives us one account with two men with no names. Mark's account gives us one man with a name. More information about casting aside his garment. He rose and came to the Lord. In my mind's eye, I'm trying to figure this out, you know. Is he following a voice? He says, will you speak again, please, so I can know which, which way to go here? We really don't know. But again, um, the harmony of the Gospels as we go through it, there's a reason the Lord allowed uh, four different men to record um, his story. So let's go back to Matthew. Uh, that's, that would be the end of uh, chapter 20. It brings us to chapter 21. And again, we'll need a harmony between this gospel and Luke's gospel to really get a full understanding of the triumphal entry. So let's read verses 1 through 11, and we'll come back and and, um, put it together with a harmony of Luke's gospel. Now, he drew near to Jerusalem, and he came to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. Now if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them. And immediately he sent them. Now when we read Luke's account, here we have two, but in Luke's account it's only going to say one. I'm pretty sure. We'll find out. (laughs) And this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, 
Tell the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, when we went through this on a Sunday morning, I said we had, um, I was talking about the importance of Bible prophecy and how some people are saying, well, you need to stay away from prophecy and not emphasize it so much. You can't. You simply can't. You can't teach through the Bible. And my point here is we have um, um, 11 verses with, I believe, three um, prophecies being, being fulfilled. This one here comes from Zechariah chapter 9. And in Zechariah chapter 9, we, it's about, um, uh, well, this verse, Tell the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey. That's Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. But in the very next verse, we have a gap of over 2,000 years because it says his kingdom shall be from everlasting to ever, from shore to shore. In other words, over the whole world, he's going to establish his kingdom. Well, the Lord never did that um, yet, but he's going to. And we have verse 10. If, if you're taking notes and you want to check it out later, we have in verse 9 the fulfillment of the donkey, or donkeys, plural. And in verse 10, we have a millennium verse, and it doesn't explain it in Zechariah. Again, you have to have a grasp of all the scriptures to see that that prophecy is going to come to pass. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, too. They laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their garments on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes went out before and those who followed crying, saying, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we have this uh, being quoted from Psalm 118. And so when he had come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved and said, Who is this a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee? Uh, turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 19, and we'll have, a, again, more information given to us here. All right, I'm going to go back up to um, verse 28, and let's just read about the cult. And we'll, again, I'll make a point. Verse, Luke 19, verse 28, when he had said this, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he came near to Bethage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples, go into the village opposite you and when, where you enter you will find a colt. So I see a pattern begin to develop. You have um, in one gospel two demon-possessed men in the land of Gadarene and in another gospel only one is mentioned. Now we just read in Matthew that there was Definitely two, the word them is used, a colt and his foal. And here is singular, a colt tied, on which no one had ever loosed, loose him and bring him here. So the miracle here is you don't sit on a horse that's never been broken. And this one had never been ridden. And why does uh, Luke 
um, just mention one and not the other? Matthew mentions two? I don't know. But clearly, them in plural is used in Matthew and it's singular here in Luke. If anyone asks you, why are you loosening him? You'll say to him, because the Lord has need of him. And again, we don't see what's going on behind the scenes. How did, how did the Lord speak to the owner of the colt? Did he know him previously? Did he say, I'm coming to town someday, and when I come, I'm going to send a couple guys over because I'm going to need to use your colt? Did that conversation happen earlier? We don't know. Did the Holy Spirit just say, uh, was an angel there just nodding his head saying, let, let it go? We don't know. He just doesn't. Um, so they went, verse 32, and departed and found it just as the Lord had said. And as they were loosing the colt, the owner said to them, why are you loosening the colt? And they said, because the Lord has need of them. End of discussion. They brought him to Jesus, threw their garments on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And he, as they went, they spread their clothes on the road. And as they were drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the great disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So we call this Palm Sunday, and this is a, probably the most incredible prophecy in the Bible. And um, you hear at Calvary, because we go through Daniel and Revelation, and we connect the dots, realize that this was the day. This is a very special day. Um, in Psalm 118, it says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Daniel 9 said, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command until the Messiah comes will be 69 weeks or 483 years or 173,880 days. And it's just a mind-boggling fulfillment of prophecy. I would say the greatest one in the Bible because it points to the day that the Lord is going to come. This is the day. It's the only day that the Lord actually accepted the, the worship of the people. Now, where Luke gives us more detail than Matthew is that the scribes and Pharisees are all upset in verse 39 because they know that Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm and it can only be attributed to nobody else than the Messiah. So they look at Jesus and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They actually think you're the Messiah. Rebuke them. But he answered and said, I tell you that if these would keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Matthew doesn't touch on that. And um, this was the day that people were going to be praising the Lord for all the great things that he said. Now again, great multitudes. And right before this event took place, just days before, we find in uh, John chapter 11, we find that Lazarus is going to be risen from the dead. And as a result of that, it says, many of the Jews believed on him. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees were so upset, they said, not only do we have to kill Jesus, but we have to kill Lazarus too because of the amount of people that are believing on Jesus. So when the Lord told Martha, Martha, just trust me on this one. I know you think I let you down by, not, by showing up two days late. Trust me, I'm not letting you down. But this sickness is not unto death. Remember it says Jesus groaned. And we talked about why did he groan? And then we read later on, it says, didn't I tell you that if you would believe, you would, you would see um, the glory of God? And then he goes to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. The guy had been dead for four days. And Lazarus comes out. And you don't think that got around town quick? Yeah, that's the reason for the magnitude of the multitude. And so... In verse 41, Jesus, there's two times in the Bible that Jesus wept. This was one of them. And the other one was when um, Lazarus had died. And remember what we talked about, it is one of two possibilities. Either it's, you know, if you weep with those who weep, and you rejoice with those who rejoice, so maybe that was happening. And his heart just went out to two sisters that feel they just lost their brother, so he's going to grieve with them. But I don't think that's the reason. I think he wept because of their lack of listening to him, then that's why he groaned. When he said, didn't I tell you that if you just believe? So it's sort of chiding them. And as he drew near the city, he wept over it. And he said, oh, if you had only known, even especially in this your day. This is your day, Israel. The things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden for your eyes. What's going to happen before we're done tonight is... Um, the Lord is going to explain that he came, sent prophets, and um, their Messiah had finally come, and uh, only a few of Israel believed on him, but the majority did not. And then he prophesies, he says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. He's talking about the Romans 38 years later from this point. It's a fact of history in 70 AD. Um, the Roman legion came and, and destroyed Jerusalem. And they were dispersed, we call it the dysphoria, um, for nearly 2,000 years. And they'll level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave one stone upon another because... You did not know the time of your visitation. He was holding them accountable. They were supposed to be teaching the book of Daniel. They were supposed to be explaining, right, that they should have been expecting some guy on a donkey on this particular day. If they would have read Daniel, if they would have read uh, Zechariah, they would have been able to put that together. And instead of telling the people to, re- to be rebuked, they should have been pointing their fingers and saying, it's late, he's here. And just like the prophet said, it's, it's unfolding. But the Lord prophesies here and says, because of this, um, implying that they should have, because you did not know the time of your visitation. All right, this goes into the cleansing of the temple in Luke, but it also does back in uh, Matthew. Let's read Matthew's account of that. 
So we find in the first 11 verses of Matthew, the multitude of the crowds, but um, quite a bit is left out. Uh, Here we have, they brought the donkey and the colt, plural, set him on them, plural. But again, in Luke's account, it only mentions one. All right, now the cleansing of the temple. Let's read verses 12 and 13. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats who sold doves. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. So here, this is... um, Uh, A prophecy being fulfilled, Malachi 3, 1, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. He's making a final public presentation of himself to the people. And again, when you consider the four gospel records together, they represent uh, a composite picture the obvious conclusion is that he did not enter the city on only one day, but actually on three separate days when you put all, at least three of the Gospels together, you actually see the Lord going into the temple and leaving and going back to Bethany each night when you put all three of the Gospels together. The first time was on Saturday, the Sabbath day. There was no money changers on that day. He looked around and left. Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked around on all things, and now when the evening had come, he went unto Bethany with the twelve. I think he was staying at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' place. Um, that's, if you're taking notes, that's Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Now, on the second day, he entered Jerusalem, would have been on Sunday, the first day of the week. Now this time the money changers are there and he cleansed the temple. That's verses 12 and uh, 13 of Matthew 21. And that would have been on Sunday. Then on the third day um, was would have been on a Monday, the second day of the week. At this time he wept over Jerusalem then entered the temple and taught and healed. And this is uh, Luke's account. Uh, he, and that's when he entered that, that day. Now when we compare these three records in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it becomes apparent that the record records three different entries. And it's possible that when you read about Jesus in the Old Testament, you could be a king, but you couldn't be a priest. David could be king, but he couldn't be a prophet. David was subject to the prophets. He was confronted by the prophets. And um, we see the Old Testament appearance of Melchizedek, who was um, the priest of Salem. And so we have Jesus in role, in the role of a king, a priest, and a prophet. And 
what I think is being implied here is that he enters three different times and apparently he did not spend the night in this city at all until the very night he was arrested. So is everybody with me? We just don't have one account of Jesus going in, into Jerusalem. He leaves every day. Now, after this, uh, we read here that after he cleansed the, the temple, um, that the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were upset. They were angry. And said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You will have praise perfected. Again, I don't want you to miss almost every other verse we're going through. Jesus is saying prophecy is being fulfilled. Just so that it gets ground in, let's turn to this one. Let's turn to Psalm 8 and read verse 2. How can you teach the Bible without dealing with Bible prophecy? Psalm, Psalm 8 verse 2 says, Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy of the avenger. And the first part of this, my cross-reference here, says Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16. Psalm 8, verse 2, is being fulfilled right here, going back to uh, Matthew 21, verse 15 and 16. Have you not read? They're supposed to have been the scholars. They were the ones who were supposed to have known. And um, he left and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Again, I think he's, the reason he was close to Lazarus and Mary and Martha is because I think that's where he stayed. Uh, also, um, on, the Mount of, on the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> All right, the cursing of the fig tree, now in the morning. Okay, now he's coming back to Jerusalem. As he returned to the city, he was hungry, and seeing the fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said, "No, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, well, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? And Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have the faith and you do not doubt, uh, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast to the sea, it will be done. And all things, whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Well, um, this can be taken out of context because James tells us that you have not and you don't get what you pray for because you're doing it for the wrong motive. You're, you're asking for this thing. Um <laughs> Uh, I get crazy songs. I'm thinking Janis Joplin in the back of my head right now. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amens. <laughs> Asking for the wrong reasons. And how many times before you were saved you did that? Lord, if you just give me this, then I'll do this for you. And if you just give me this, then I'll do this for you. So you can't take this verse out of context. Our prayers should always be lined up with thy will be done. 
So we pray a prayer. We say, um, thy will be done. And so we have the cursing of the fig tree in verses 18 to 22. I believe the fig tree is symbolic of the nation of Israel, as in Matthew 24. Uh, when we get there, we'll make a point of that. Um, when the Lord came to Israel, he was expecting to find fruit. Uh, but the nation of Israel went through a religious form, but they had no power. They had turned what God had given to them into dead, lifeless ritual without vitality, which no longer was accomplishing God's purposes. And I'm on the opinion that God will deal the same way with the organized church, which has turned its back on the person of, of the Lord. You have a name that you're alive, but you're, you're dead. Many people will go to church on Sunday morning, but they're not saved, they're not born again. It's just ritual. It's what they grew up doing. And um, I feel the cursing of the fig tree here is symbolic. Certainly he condemned the nation of Israel. We just read it in Luke. He says, because you did not know the time of your coming, you're going to go into, be dispersed into all the world. That happened. It's a fact of history. Happened in 70 AD. John 1, verse 11 says, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. They weren't ready for him. He was looking for fruit. Um, Go to Isaiah chapter 5. And this is exactly the complaint that Isaiah um, is making in the parable of the vineyard. In Isaiah chapter 5, let's just read the first seven verses. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, cleared out the stones, planted it with the choicest vine, built a tower in the midst. He also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And he's talking about the nation of Israel. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please tell me, uh, what will I do to my vineyard? I will take away its hedges, and it shall be burned. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I'll lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug. But they shall come up briars and thorns, and I will command the clouds that that, uh, they rain no more on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plants. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. He came to his own, and his own received him not. In other words, he was looking for fruit. So what we have here in the cursing, I believe, of the fig tree, let's go back to it, in uh, Matthew 21. When we get to Matthew 24, we have the parable of the fig tree. When they are brought back into the land after the dispersion. But the reason for the dispersion is the Lord is saying, what more could I have done for you? I, um, 
sent you the prophets and um, told them that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And, um, and yet the curse here is um, really the fact that Israel really brought forth no fruit. So what's going to happen is it's going to be turned over to others um, who will. And that's a reference to the church, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there. Let's go to the question of Jesus' authority. I love this one. And when he came to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, okay, I'll, I'll ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. He's talking about John the baptism. Where, where was it from? Was it from heaven or was it from men? Well, that stumped him. This is, this is a setup. They simply want to trap the Lord. And he just turns the table on them. And they, they got together in a little huddle and reasoned among themselves and say, well, if we say it was from heaven, he'll say this, so why then didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for I'll count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we don't know. And Jesus said, and I'm not going to tell you either by what authority I do these things. To me, that's funny. <laughs> you don't play mind games with the creator of the mind. He, he knew what they were going to say before he, they even said it. And he just turned the tables on them as they tried to set their little traps and he just um, blows them right off. The parable of the two sons is going to be pointed now at these self-righteous Pharisees. So now the Lord says, well, what do you think? And now he's still addressing the scribes and the Pharisees. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he said, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise, and he said, I I go, sir, but he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Now he's setting them up with a question. And they said to him, The first. Jesus said unto them, Assuredly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in a way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. So he's, he's calling these guys out. This, uh, what's taking place here, is a terrible insult to the religious leaders. Jesus likens them to the second son who said he would work for his father but did not. And the Lord places publicans and harlots on a higher place than these religious leaders. You see, publicans and harlots recognize that they're sinners. And they came to Jesus for salvation. They came late At first, they said no to God, but they repented and came to him, and he received him. There are people who are not going to go to heaven who think they're going to heaven because they think they're good people, and they're self-righteous in their religion, and they never repent. But you don't have to convince a prostitute that she's a sinner. 
And um, like the, the woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8. And, you know, they wanted to stone her. Again, it was just a setup. It was just a trap. They could have cared less about her life at all. They just wanted to get to Jesus. And Jesus dismisses them one by one and says, okay, go ahead and stone her. Oh, but let it be the guy that has never sinned. He can throw the first stone. And so he got down on the ground and began to write in the sand. And I think I know what the Lord wrote. I think he wrote a guy's name down and mentioned the sin of adultery. And it says, beginning with the eldest to the youngest, they all left. And I believe he looked eyeball to eyeball with those guys. When one left, he'd get down and get right some more. And by the time he was done with them, they were all gone. And he looked at the, the harlot. She says, where are your accusers? And she said, no man here, Lord. She called him Lord. You mean to tell me that she got saved right there on the spot as Jesus is doing this? Yeah. Just like the thief on the cross. Remember me, Lord. What was he? He was a thief. What did he have going for him? Nothing. He said, just remember me, Lord, when you enter your kingdom. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. He's saved. Two thieves, one saved, one wasn't. What was the difference? One repented in his heart. Oh, you don't catch it. It's just in the words, Lord. But God knows the hearts. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. And as a result... um, we have this indictment against um, the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay, the parable of the landowner, and um, let's make it through these here. 3346. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. It sounds like Isaiah 5 to me. And when a vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed the other, and stoned another. And he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then at last, all sent his, he sent his son to them, saying, well, they'll respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyards come, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyards to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit of their season. And Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures? Now what I want to point out here is what he's about to quote also comes from Psalm 118. And remember when the Lord came in on the donkey? The people were quoting Psalm 118. And the Pharisees freaked out and said, rebuke the people, they're quoting Psalm 118. And uh, because it was about Jesus. And I love this because in Luke 19, when you read it, and here he's quoting it, and he's taking the same one that they used to say rebuke your followers. Now Jesus uses Psalm 118 to point the finger right at them. He said, the stone which the builders rejected, that would be the Lord, 
and the religious leaders are rejecting him, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and marvelous in our eyes. This is all Psalm 118. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of heaven will be taken away from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. I don't have much time, but this, this is a verse that talks about Israel being put on a shelf temporarily and the gospel being open to the Gentile world, the church for the last 2,000 years. Some have taken this, and even during World War II, Martin Luther is guilty of this, uh, one time sympathetic towards the Jewish people, but basically wrote a track outlining the Holocaust. And Hitler used it, and some of, I've been to Auschwitz three times, and some of the places that, that are there is in the name of Jesus, the, that uh, this is being done, you Christ killers, and so on and so forth. That was the attitude in, um, amongst some Christians. And so what we read here is true that the gospel was opened up to us, but remember Romans, it says blindness has happened in, to Israel in part, in part, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. God owes Israel seven years. So we have groups of people, Jehovah Witnesses are one, um, that said, well, you know, when you read Revelation um, 144,000, that's really Jehovah Witnesses. And I said, really? You guys believe that the Bible's the word of God? Okay, let's, let's, let's read it. And so we'll read 12,000 from the tribe of Ephraim, Issachar, and right, right on down the line, all 12 tribes. And I said, sounds to me like he's talking to Israel here. And they said, no, 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 God's, God's through with Israel. I said, okay, then let's go to Romans. We'll read Romans. Has God forsaken his people? It's either 9 verse 1 or 11 verse 1. And I have him read it out loud. Has God forsaken his people? Certainly not. Well, what's he doing? Well, he set them aside temporarily so that the gospel could be open to us. And when the rapture takes place, that's the time of the fullness, we're out of here, and then the clock begins to tick for seven more years. And God is going to work with the nation of Israel. Two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, 144,000. I think one of the greatest revivals of world history will take place during that time. And a lot of people will take the mark of the beast during a seven-year period of time. God is not through with Israel. All right, let's, let's finish this out. Therefore, I say to you, that, um, verse um, 44, whoever falls on a stone will be broken, but whoever falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking to them. They perceived correctly. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him as a prophet. I'll close with this thought tonight. There's only one or two possibilities. There's only one way. And Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. That's clear enough. Now you can believe that. And if you believe that and be like the uh, tax collectors and the harlots who repent because they know they're sinners, you're being broken. You're falling on the stone And verse 44, whoever falls on a stone will be broken. That's what you have to do in order to be saved. 
You can't come with a, uh, a self-righteous attitude. You have to actually acknowledge, I am a sinner. And um, like I like to say, there could be no conversion without conviction. Conviction in the heart, I'm lost, I need a savior, and you're broken on a stone. That's one possibility. But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Well, this reminds me of Daniel. And all the kingdoms that the world has ever known, starting with Babylon, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Grecian, Roman. There hasn't been a world empire since Rome. But in the last days, the Antichrist will come and he'll be over with ten kings. But while these ten kings are reigning, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes a stone. And it smites the image and destroys the kingdom of man and establishes his own kingdom. So, And he judges those who would not submit themselves to him. So the second part of uh, our study in closing tonight, if you refuse to humble your heart and be broken, well, my Bible says someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether you believe it or not, it's still going to happen. I haven't asked for an amen all night. I'm going to ask for one now. Amen. amen. And so here's one of two options. You need to be broken. You need to repent of your sins. And Jesus will accept you. And you'll be saved. But if you choose not to, through self-righteousness or pride or whatever, someday that stone's going to fall on you and you will be judged. And you'll be judged by your works instead of by the grace of God. Amen? Stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, as we make our way through Matthew, we see the harmony and the beauty that your Holy Spirit has blended the Gospels together. And we thank you for this hour on Wednesday night. We don't ever want to take it for granted um, that you have a purpose and a, a plan. In the meantime, Lord, whatever it is that you've given to us, just help us be faithful in, in our tasks that you've set before us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.